guys, Psychology Nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of the hosts of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here as always with my co-host, chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, also my friend, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungess. How's it going, G? It is going well, um, although uh, last night my car got hit by a snowplow. No! Um, so I, I'm looking for some empathy, which is going to be a great uh, segue uh, into what we're talking about. And I'm going to expect it from one of our guests more than the other. And we'll explain why that might be true in a moment. Wow. I, that was a dynamite intro, but I, I have to be <laughs> uh, totally honest with you and say when you started out that sentence with although... I thought you were going to dispute whether or not we were friends. I thought you were going to say, although I don't really <laughs> think of us as friends. And my heart broke just a little bit briefly. Wow. No, no, I, I'm I'm going to say like we've done what, like three episodes about how we are friends. And so yes. like, even if I consider us not friends, it's too late. <laughs> like I should have stopped this three yeah. episodes ago. Yeah. Okay. I hear that. I and this <laughs> might just be my own insecurity coming through. So I I need to. So I'm wanting to offer some empathy, though this may be breaking the 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 plan. Um, I'm sorry <laughs> to yeah. hear about your car. That's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Were it's you in great, it? But I was not in it. Thank goodness, because it, it broke the whole all of the back windows. Like so. Oh. I, no, I was not in it. My car was innocently parked properly on the street, you know, but we live in Wisconsin. It happens. It is what it is. And so um, I just, uh, I just am looking for some empathy and yeah. I'm expecting it. So thank yeah. you for when offering you say, a small bit of it. When you say your car was parked innocently, you make it sound like it it parked itself. Like it was a self-driving, <laughs> was this, was this a Tesla? Was <laughs> It was not the Tesla, thank okay. goodness. Yeah, that's an expensive error. So, yes. all right. I awesome. think we, I think we should get to our guests so that they can offer you the empathy that I, I'm not sure I'm adequately offering. So are, <laughs> are you ready for this? I am so ready. Right. So we have a couple of great guests today, both from the UW Green Bay Psychology Program. First, you heard her on an episode last fall talking about VR and empathy. She's an assistant professor of psychology here at UW-Green Bay, and she researches empathy and perspective taking. She has a PhD in cognitive, social, and developmental psychology from the New School of Social Research, and she did a postdoc at the National Institute for Health, where she studied the health benefits of emerging technology. Yeah, the health benefits of emerging technologies. It's Dr. Allison Jane Martingano. How's it going, Allison Jane? Hi, thanks for having me on again. I'm really sorry to hear about your car, Georgina. Thanks. I was expecting some really great empathy from you. Yeah. I, well, I, I would, I want to say I can really understand what you're going through, but being new to Wisconsin, a lot of this is still very foreign to me. See, so There you go. Yeah. Well, yeah. I hope that it be, it stays foreign to you. <laughs> wow. I, I gotta tell you, I've lived here for 18 years, never been hit by a snowplow. So I'm, you know, honestly blaming you. How's that? For, <laughs> <laughs> how's that for not offering empathy? Am I doing well? Yeah. Mm. I, 
That was a very judgmental. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I also butchered uh, your intro there, and I'm very, very sorry for that. So um, are we ready to get to our second guest? Yes. Awesome. He's looking glum. I think he wants to be involved. So our second (laughs) guest has been on almost as many episodes of Psychology and Stuff as I have. He's an associate professor, soon to be a full professor in the psychology program here at UW-Green Bay, who researches the neural development of moral judgment, moral action, self-control, empathy, and social behavior. He has a PhD from the University of Minnesota, and he did his postdoc at the University of Chicago. He now knows why I texted him earlier in the day and asked him where he did his postdoc. It's Dr. Jason Cowell. Hey, great to be on. I you know, to stay in tune with what this article will be all about. Uh, I feel nothing for you, G. So uh, <laughs> well played, my friend. Yeah. Jason is dead inside. We have I seen. feel nothing for you. So yes, that's exactly right. All right. So so listeners may have gathered this already, but maybe not. This episode is framed around an article that came out a few months ago, I guess in December. Um, I discovered it in a couple of different places, or I saw some write-ups about it in a couple of different places. Most recently in CNN Health said, all around the world, women are better empathizers than men study finds. And so we thought we would unpack this uh, in an episode and talk about it more fully. Are we ready to do that? Absolutely. And I can't think of two more perfect guests than our two experts about empathy uh, to, to start off this conversation. So I wonder if maybe, Allison, Jane, if you could give us like maybe just a a glimpse into um, like a definition of empathy so that we know what we're talking about. Like the article talked about something called cognitive empathy. Can you tell us a little bit about that so that our listeners know what we're talking about? Yeah, sure. Uh, So uh, within the world of empathy research, it's often split into sort of two main parts called cognitive empathy and effective empathy. Uh, So sort of broadly speaking, uh, cognitive empathy is where you can understand what someone else is thinking or feeling, uh, but you don't necessarily have an emotional response to them. That would be the other type of empathy, that effective empathy, which is more uh, having an emotional feeling of compassion or concern for somebody else. And so you can sort of think of cognitive empathy as empathy with your head and effective empathy as empathy with your heart. Uh, And so this paper that we're going to be talking about uh, really only focused on measuring that cognitive empathy. So what do we think? I'm struggling today, talking on all sorts of great (laughs) moments. We can't we can't do these on Friday afternoons anymore, Georgina. I think that's I'm always too noted. So, So what do we think? I mean, what I'm curious to hear from both of you on this. What did your gut tell you when you saw the uh, the, the headline of this article? Um, is it consistent with what you were expecting? Is it different? Where are we at? Jason, I'm going to start with you. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Allison Jane defines the arguably two sides of empathy well. Um, I mean, arguably, this isn't empathy in what they're talking about, but uh, I can get to that. It's emotion recognition in a different way. Um, and so I think there's a caveat there. 
That being said, it's consistent with a series of findings that have been out for about 30 years. Um, really consistently across a whole host of modalities of testing empathy. And again, this is empathy is a broad construct that has many definitions, but just the broad field, there seem to be differences uh, between, we'll go with sexes in this case, because it's a newer thing to talk about, gender differences specifically within uh, cognitive or affective empathy or empathic concern or all of this. I guess I wasn't that surprised. Um, at the same time, I'm surprised how much press it's getting for kind of the size of the effect. It's just, it's it's not huge. And so I think that that's not as talked about as we're going through pieces of this. And that's a caveat to the stuff I think I'll probably say later. what did you think, Allison Jane? Uh, I think that, I was I was not surprised, as Jason says, this is uh, one of many studies that finds this trend, but I guess saddened by the lack of nuance that the press had around it. Uh, so this, uh, the evidence that women are better at empathy seems to turn almost automatically into women are inherently better at empathy and that this is a, a biological difference of some kind. And I think that that's uh, really overlooks how men and women are socialized to value empathy differently. I was thinking about that, uh, particularly uh, uh, with the title of the test that they used to measure said empathy. I think it's called like reading the mind in the eyes or something like that. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about that test? And Jason, you kind of alluded to the fact that perhaps it's not even measuring empathy. Can you say something about the actual test that they used? Yeah, I mean, so mind, the mind in the eyes task or reading the mind in the eyes task has been around for quite a while now. It's uh, Simone Baron Cohen's task uh, out of the UK. And it was designed more to look at autism spectrum. It's, it's always been one to get at emotion recognition in developmental populations, particularly to look at their emotion recognition, um, especially in higher functioning spectrum. Um, there have been a lot of popular press articles that have actually put the stimuli into, there's a famous one from New York Times about a decade ago that put the entire mind in the eyes task out for everyone to see. And so it kind of spoiled people from being able to legitimately do this task if you read the New York Times for a while. Um, and so it's it's a commonly used task. It's really common in the autism literature. It's less common in this sort of instance, but it is a task that looks specifically at um, the, the nasal bridge into the brow ridge and just the eyes of almost all of these are famous individuals, uh, so celebrities or uh, famous individuals, and it's just looking at that. And it asks you to, uh, to, I guess it would be between four different selections, choose which of them best displays the emotion. So is this, uh, they are feeling annoyed or surprised or uh, different types of emotions like that. Uh, standard, I can't remember if it's 30 or 32 different faces, but it's in that 30-ish range, uh, which will be, one of the pieces I think we'll talk about more when we talk about the actual results. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of different things looking at just the nasal bridge. And people are generally pretty good at doing this, which is, for the most part, uh, when you're looking at cues towards emotion, if you think about the famous images from 30 years ago now, looking at eye tracking and infants to look at where they're getting cues about 
emotion, it's across the eye, it's the T-shape. So it's across the, uh, the eyes and then down the nose. And so we get a lot of information from this type of task to understand what emotion another person is feeling. Not necessarily how much they're feeling that emotion or the implications of it, but just to recognize the emotion the person is feeling. I'd, I'd love to jump in and, and, and say that I was such a great summary of the task, but I, I'd love to point out some, some problems with the task as well that, that I think give a good context for it. So as Jason said, these are clippings from uh, pictures of famous people and then just chopping out the eye section. And so uh, when they say that you get this right and you've selected the right answer here, and so the question really is whether that's correct. Uh, they didn't know what this person was expressing when this photograph was taken. This is just a paparazzi photograph or uh, um, some other kind of photograph. And they, uh, they decide that you're correct if you select the option that most people select. So instead of really testing whether you're getting it right here, they're testing whether you are um, aware of what other people would think that emotion expression would be, which is still showing some social awareness here that this is generally how that emotion is expressed and understood, but isn't really quite the same thing as when you're saying reading the mind in the eyes, it's suggesting some kind of mind reading ability uh, that this test isn't capable of picking up on. Uh, and the other thing to mention with this, um, this is more of a technicality, but the options that you're given as the four options to choose from often use quite complex vocabulary. And so this test isn't uh, very easy for people with a limited vocabulary, whether that's because they're not a native English speaker or because they just have a lower verbal IQ. And so sometimes better performance on this task just goes hand in hand with better verbal ability. And I also read, I think I read, <clears throat> they did this in many countries, like 57 countries, but they used the English words. Does that mean like they, they use literally the words frustrated, happy, joyful, like, and so the complicated vocabulary would have a, an immense effect on that in a non-English speaker, right? I'd, I'd go as far as saying, yeah, if, if English is your second language, you're probably going to find this, this test a lot harder. I uh, was unfortunately the words aren't as simple as happy. Um, you know, there'll be, there are quite a lot more complex, nuanced emotional words. And to build off of what Alison Jane is saying, yeah, it's not just um, exclusionary. It ends up meaning that given how high the averages actually were across the population in, you know, in the 30 trials, it was in the high 20s, et cetera, average. It means you're talking about exactly what Alison Jane was saying, which is really high verbal ability in potentially a second language, which is usually indicative of higher cognitive abilities across the board of a highly educated sample, et cetera. And so we're getting into pieces that uh, kind of skew the way that you can interpret these results. Well, and it strikes me, and, and Jason, you hinted at this earlier, that this is a very narrow definition of empathy, if if a definition of empathy at all. I, I mean, it, it, I would argue, I guess, and I'd be curious to hear both of you, that recognizing someone's emotions is probably an element of empathy, but it's certainly not all of empathy. Is that a, is that fair? Yeah, that's, I, that, I think that's the piece that both Alison and Jane and I would say is, is the first key is that this is not all of empathy whatsoever. It's arguable that this even is cognitive empathy per se, in that there's a secondary ele element to understanding the emotions of others. That's not just 
the valence of the emotion or the label of the emotion, but it's the level of arousal of that emotion the other person is experiencing. So if we're thinking about just emotion theory, which Ryan, you're going to be way more familiar with, with than I ever will be on this, but you're talking about things that you're, you always have to characterize both the psychophysiological arousal happening in your body. So that how much are you feeling something versus the what are you feeling? And so both of those separate elements have to be integrated. And this really is only getting at the uh, what are is that person experiencing, not how much are they experiencing? And most studies of cognitive empathy also, the measures themselves are going to tap a little bit into the how much is that person experiencing as well as a necessary piece of perspective taking. Yeah, I'd, I'd also agree. This is, I, I would say it is a part of empathy. Would, to me, it counts within the definition, um, but it obviously is only one small part of a larger concept. Um, but I do think it is interesting. And I think the reason that this article got the press it did was that usually, uh, it's my understanding that uh, other measures of empathy, usually questionnaire measures of empathy, have been showing these gender differences for decades. It's not newsworthy that, that women report to being more empathic than men. So what made a splash here, I think, is because it is a performance-based I wonder, the like the second part of the definition that they gave in the article about cognitive em empathy had something to do with predicting future behavior. Like if you're you're have higher cognitive empathy, not only can you like understand and perspective take uh, on another human's mental state, but also predict their future behavior. In what way is that beneficial to us as humans? I guess I'll, I'll jump in and start. Um, but the So I mean, on, in anything that you're talking about social behavior, so you're talking about uh, studies of a broader concept of empathy and understanding that, you're oftentimes then trying to link it to explicit, not just the cognitions that people are having or the, the, the thought processes or the feelings that they're having, but also the, what are the implications in their own behavior? What are the implications in predicting other people's behavior? And so like linking those across. Uh, a lot of this is about linking it to the types of uh, good or bad actions that people would do. So broadly morality, here they're talking a little bit more about it as a pro-sociality or a pro-good so like behaviors that uh, you would expect from people. Um, that's part and parcel with developmental aspects of social behavior. It's that these are critical signals to give about what we should expect from others in certain situations. Uh, how steady and how secure of a base, if we're talking about our own parents and understanding the types of emotions they're expressing, how secure are they for us to go towards as a comforting base to then be able to explore new things from an attachment perspective. Um, for peers, it's how predictable are they in your playground experiences that you know they're not going to suddenly go in and punch you or push you. You have predictable aspects given the kinds of emotions they're expressing. So that kind of connection is, is critical to understand how we interact with others and then critical to understand how our own emotions inform the types of behaviors we do afterwards. I think that's a much better <laughs> description than I could have given. Um, I think what's interesting, though, about this uh, manuscript, so um, obviously the Simon Baron Cohen's Reading the Mind the Eyes test, as Jason described, is, it was sort of uh, developed within the autism research world. And obviously he's no author on this paper. And I think that there's a 
sort of flavoring of that throughout is this idea that um, uh, if you have deficits, severe deficits in some of these abilities, you might struggle to function in certain social environments. But the differences, the, the size of the differences between genders they're seeing is so small, we're not, we're not in the realm of talking about a difference that would be clinically meaningful in any way. Well, and that's, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I, I, honestly, I, I think that's the biggest piece here, which is the historic studies that Alice and Jane was talking about that are all survey reports. So it's parents reporting on their kids, the kinds of behaviors they express or the kinds of thoughts they think their kids have, teachers reporting on kids, uh, adults reporting on themselves, everything that is a survey-based measure does tend to show slightly larger um, female bias towards empathic aspects. And that's in both cognitive and affective empathy, um, if you subdivide those across. They, you, you see this finding consistently, but the biggest question I would argue is always out of the, it's, it's what Alice and Jane was saying, which is, is this a biologically, uh, it's not even quite nature nurture, but is it like something that we are particularly sensitive to as a biological sex very early in development that then just gets exacerbated across in a gene by environment interaction? Or is this something that is, um, you know, so uh, in-depthly ingrained in genetics and there's a little bit of a hint towards heritability estimates within even this article uh, that maybe this is a heritable characteristic? It's hard to tell because I would say the strength is this is a task. You're right. This is an experimental task. It shows a difference. It shows a tiny difference. We're talking about the equivalent of about one face uh, error difference between uh, men and women across the board on this. And I think the other piece to mention here is that there have been in the past decade quite a few studies that have integrated physiological or neuroscience methods into empathy and they tend not to show heavy gendered differences. Um, they, they tend to show comparable networks of activation. They tend to show similar physiological, like psychophysiological arousal on the affective side to the same kind of stimuli of other people in pain. Um, and so there's kind of that question of, is this a societal expectation piece that it seems like the nature of the questions themselves are more comfortable to say, yes, I oftentimes take the perspective of others when I'm in a, a social situation, um, that it's that we're seeing a remnant still of, of gender stereotypes and expectations within the testing phenomenon. Here, this stems a little bit further from that. And so I think that's why it's, it's a cool-ish finding, but it, it's really hard to interpret beyond this as such a tiny effect size for sure. Well, and that might, uh, so Allison Jane, you, you mentioned earlier on, you know, you were surprised by the lack of nuance that uh, some of the coverage of this had gotten. And maybe we've already touched on this, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of pitch that nuance for us. Like what, what should they have written uh, about this article? Yeah, so this this article is sort of setting up this this gender difference, and then in the article, at least, I think it's relatively balanced, saying that biological explanations might be one of pos many possible explanations. Uh, but myself, I, I think that biological explanations here are the least likely explanation. So, so men and women are socialized to value empathy very, very differently from a young age. Girls are encouraged to anticipate and to understand the thoughts and feelings in others more so than than boys are, and. Uh, I really do believe that, that cognitive empathy is a skill that we learn and we can improve on if we practice it. And girls are simply encouraged to practice it more throughout their lifetimes. And there's a couple of cool findings um, 
that sort of support this idea that um, it's, it's, it's a socialization process. So gender role orientation is often a better predictor of these gender differences in empathy than actual gender or sex is. And, and typically, as, as Jason was saying, you know, neuropsychological evidence doesn't find these differences. But you, uh, if it does, you can usually get rid of it by motivating people more. So if you, if you add an additional motivation in, like paying people more money, uh, men's performance can increase to the same as women. So it just seems that women are uh, socialized to value doing this task more, to put more motivation in, to try harder to do it, to fit with uh, the society's roles and expectations for us. So I wonder, in our last episode, when we talked to uh, Dr. McRae Husting about perseverance, we were talking about um, tips about ways in which we, we can teach kids how to increase empathy or to increase perseverance. And I wish, I wonder if there's a similar set of tips or uh, things that you could share with our listeners of ways in which we as parents or we as humans or we as adults uh, uh, can increase our own or others' empathy. Yeah, so I think I think it is a skill that that's, that simply requires practice. Uh, so it's um, putting yourself in those slightly ambiguous and difficult social situations that require you to try and figure out what the other person is thinking or feeling. But it is worth pointing out that this is difficult and it's hard work and it's exhausting. And so I'm not sure we want to continually encourage people to do this more and more. My my concern actually comes from sort of the, the persistence of this idea that women are just better at doing this naturally in some way is that we'll end up putting more of a burden on them to do the emotional work and to do the emotional labor because they are seen as being inherently better at doing it when it's actually something that's hard work for both genders. Yeah, I think that's such an important point is that because the expectation is arguably different, the expectation of labor load becomes different. And if we're being frank, not caring about or not being motivated by the emotion that another person is experiencing can make life a lot easier. It can, it can frankly, like in a, I'm a, a dorky Star Trek person. And so if we're talking about things like Vulcan, it can be a very, you just use a logical outcome rather than having to have uh, another system that's informing different things you have to balance. Now it has huge implications if you don't do that and downstream implications on the social level, but for just making decisions, it's a lot easier. And so the, it, arguably triaging, and uh, in this case, males having the ability to triage because of differential expectations that Alison Jane was talking about, I think really shifts things. Um, and that's that's problematic in this case. I think there's some interesting things if you're talking about um, shifting this, about uh, practicing this, that, you know, I, and Alison Jane, you can speak way better than I can because this comes from labs you were in in, in graduate school, but there's so much cool stuff about kids and reading fiction that talks about emotional states, that just the practice of talking about or reading about emotional states early on has implications. The part on the other side that I think is important is, you know, we're talking a lot about cognitive empathy because this was about cognitive empathy. The affective empathy side also shows dramatic shifts, but sometimes in the opposite direction. So when you take groups that are traditionally 
supposed to be really empathic individuals. So medical practitioners, social workers, et cetera, um, you constantly hear about burnout rates and you hear about desensitization to the affective side of empathy. And there's a pretty cool literature uh, looking at how medical students across medical school go from having a really strong kind of gut-based physiological response of panic when they see blood of others or pain to others to then not having that. That doesn't mean in kind of the against empathy sort of argument from Paul Bloom that that means they're not empathizing or they're not putting themselves in the shoes. They're they're well aware of the cognitive aspects of this, of, of how much pain the person is experiencing um, and what they're experiencing. It just doesn't have that secondary piece. And that's also part that you kind of sometimes see in psychopaths, which is there's arguably that differentiation between those pieces uh, that can be uh, shifted. All right. So what, one of the take-homes for me from this conversation has been the broader than just the discussions of empathy, it's actually the need to understand an entire literature base instead of making judgments based on a single scientific finding and a single study. But I'm curious if we could kind of go around the, the rooms here and, and talk about what people think should be a take home from this. Allison, Jane, why don't we start with you? Nobody jumped, so I had to play teacher and call on someone. Uh, I would I would say that my take home would be that there might be uh, differences in emotion recognition between men and women, but these are probably not inherent. These are not necessarily inherent differences, and are likely because women have spent their lives practicing these abilities more. Jason, what do you think? I think that's a beautiful take home. I I, I think it exactly describes what to take from this study with the idea that if you bring in the last 30 years of literature with other types of assessments, there, in testing, there is a difference in exhibited and in reported empathic abilities between men and women. But the, the mechanism of that, the reason for that, I completely agree, is likely not just an inherent difference. It's something that very much uh, has societal uh, and so micro and macro cultural inputs uh, across development. I wonder, can I can I ask a question instead of saying a, a take sure. home? Uh, I was thinking about when we were talking in our perseverance episode about uh, lawnmower parents who like, um, like try and clear the path for their children so that they never have to fail uh, and they don't have to struggle with anything. And I'm wondering if that is part of cognitive empathy that parents have for their children, that they are predicting their children's behavior and um, feeling empathetic that they are going to mess up as humans do because we are imperfect beings and so they try and um, predict their their future behavior and then clear away any mistakes that they could possibly make are those connected in in some way do you think either of you Jason or Allison Jane um, I don't know if I if I know enough about parenting not uh, being the only non-parent here and <laughs> I can speak to this. Uh, but when you said that, I was thinking about um, how maybe parents 
do sort of empathize on behalf of their kids. So they're sort of thinking about what their children should be doing or, or thinking or anticipating and then doing it for them. And I suppose my worry with that is that you're sort of cheating your children out of the opportunity to practice those skills themselves. And, and, and in the end, they won't learn quite as much from that. Yeah, and it's that's a great point. It's one where, um, as a, a parent of a five-year-old, I find myself go uh, trying to ride a fine line between knowing it's it's less that the emotional state she's in will then predict uh, the behavior she has later. It's actually the reverse for me. It's that seeing the behavior she does, then I'm predicting the type of emotional state she will likely have because of those, because of interpersonal pieces afterwards. And so an easy one to talk about is newer parenting models of flexibility and outfit choices, where it is that I'd say one of the hardest pieces is knowing that you, you want your child to develop independence, you want them to have those kinds of experiences that are good and bad about choices that are made. At the same time, you constantly are, are going, I don't want my child to experience embarrassment because of an outfit that they will get made fun of. And so you have to ride that fine line as you're trying to make these debates over like, wow, that doesn't match at all. What do we, like, do I say something? Do I not say something? And the, the bigger movements are not to say that, to have that experience of embarrassment, partially because then it allows people to not bully as much themselves. And that's one of the bigger pieces in bullying is, uh, the experiential part of being embarrassed yourself is supposed to uh, predict that you'll be less likely to do the kinds of things that would make someone else feel really embarrassed. Jason, that sounded like a very specific example. Did you get made fun a lot of? Uh... <laughs> right, I think we've established that I was a dorky kid, so we're just gonna... <laughs> Now, in Georgina, I think that in Wisconsin, those are called snowplow parents. Uh, not <laughs> So. Okay. Love that. I love that. <laughs> so I actually do. I think one of the things we've established here is that none of us actually care about your car, Georgina, <laughs> that we've it's all all equally. We uh, we don't care. So or we all care a lot. I can't really tell anymore. This has been a, a tricky conversation for oh, Jason's tearing up. So what we can say is that I will be expected to care more, which is what we established at the start. <laughs> I hope you've been practicing, Allison Jane. <laughs> wow. All right. So I think we are about ready to wrap up, but I do want to give everybody a chance to just plug something, say a final thing, anything you want people to know. Jason? Yeah. Um, as I've said on previous episodes, I don't have a social media pre uh, presence for my lab. Uh, I'm particularly bad at that. But if you're interested in studies on empathy or the brain on empathy, uh, come. We've got a lot of studies going on. I think Alice and Jane has some going on, too, where come participate. We'd love to have you on campus and trying to participate in the science behind understanding empathy. Jason, you may not have a social media presence, but I've created one for you uh, on social media. At least, at least I think I have. I I frequently wear the shirt you're wearing right now because it makes me feel cool, like I'm part of your lab and part of the part of your group. So, I appreciate that. Allison Jane, anything you want to plug or tell people about? Yeah, we don't have T-shirts for my lab yet. 
Um, I, I hope to get them soon. We're actually painting the lab logo on the wall this weekend. So the lab is getting up and running very, very quickly. And so I'll just echo Jason said, uh, I'd love people to come and take part. I don't do the cool brain stuff that Jason does, but I do do some cool VR stuff. So there's that. And I'm going to put in a request right now for one of those shirts when they are made, please. I, I will even pay for it. Jason gave me his for free, but I will I will pay for it. If it... <laughs> no pressure there. <laughs> <laughs> Georgina, final, uh, final thoughts, anything you want to add? I was just going to say that um, Allison Jane is headed to SPSP, the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, to present some of related research on empathy. Uh, so maybe uh, check that out in a, a journal article near you. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. So uh, please, everybody, make sure to follow us or check us out at Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's a good place to ask questions, request topics for episodes, and more. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok and other places at Anger Professor Georgina. I'm at G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D. And Allison Jane, you've got a social media presence out there, I think. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at AJ Martingale. Excellent. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick and our graphic designer is Kimberly Bleese. Special thanks to all our guests today, Dr. Jason Cowell and Dr. Allison Jane Martingano. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-horse. <laughs> I think I just called you a co-horse. So... Yes. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dundas. Keep being amazing. No more Friday afternoons. <laughs>